Hello. Welcome and thank you for joining us and listening to our podcast, The God Beyond the Bible. Our podcast is released weekly each Friday. The content of each episode is based on the questions and curiosities we all have about God and the Bible. Many of our topics are considered taboo in the minds of the mainstream church. You will find our discussions to be, I think, refreshing and often far from traditional. But we don't just skirt around these complex issues, but confront them head on, and not in the way you're used to hearing them discussed on typical Christian talk shows. I'm Alan Rowland, creator and host of The God Beyond the Bible. As of the launch of this podcast, I've been a pastor for more than 35 years. My co-host is my daughter, Trayson, and our engineer, co-producer, is my daughter, Tabitha. Our mission is to encourage our audience, along with us, to open our minds to the reality that God is simply too big to be fully explored or experienced by the reading and studying of a single ancient work. In short, the Bible's not the sum of God, and to think this is to limit what He has done, is doing, and what He will do in our future. So with introductions made, thank you for listening, and let's dive into the topic of the day. Oh, welcome, Seekers, to podcast number 93 of God Beyond the Bible, a podcast made by Seekers and for Seekers. These are historic times we are are. living in, (laughs) not just the political and social unrest or merely due to the pandemic, but there is clearly a reformation in progress in the in the organized Christian religious community, most definitely. And we think it's time for us to rethink everything we have been taught and told concerning the Bible and the character of God and the role that the divine plays in our modern society. And we've got shout outs this week to Josh and to our listeners in, I'm going to totally butcher this, so we're just going to go with South Africa. I'm so sorry, but I tried to say your town name, and it's just not going to. I'm not very good at those things. (laughs) Awesome. So our quote of the week is, the spiritual journey is the unlearning of fear and the acceptance of love. And that's by Marianne Williamson. That's good. Yeah. Okay, last episode, we more or less relayed the foundation, which is the basis of the whole God Beyond the Bible effort. Uh, We believe that if we as the modern believer, especially those of us raised and influenced by the dogma and traditions of the modern organized church, if we'll just take a deep breath and step back and objectively observe our narrative, doctrines, and more importantly, our approach to the role of the Bible in all this, we may just discover how we arrived at this place we are today. In this episode, we're going to discuss the topic of evangelism, its origin, and the role it plays in bringing us to this place in the church's long and fragmented history. Most of us probably think that we know what evangelism is, but for clarity, let's go ahead and define this word that has come to be synonymous with the Christian church. So a definition, evangelism is defined as the spreading of the Christian gospel by public preaching or personal witness. The zealous advocacy of a cause. The teaching of a belief with the aim to persuade the listener to believe as well. Now, most believe that the final words of Jesus written in the gospel accounts that say, Go ye into all the earth, teaching and baptizing in my name, is a great commission. Now that it was. Uh, But they believe that it's a commission that Jesus left for us. And thus is a commission to evangelism. And this is how most of us were told to interpret this command. Matthew 28, 16 through 20 reads, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke unto them, saying, 
All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the earth. So at first gla- glance, especially if we've been strongly influenced by the dogma of the evangelical Christian community, we may read this as a commission to all believers to evangelize until the end of time. However, it seems that we ignore the fact that this commission was given to a specific group of people, the 11 disciples. Mm -hmm. You know, Judas had died and Paul hadn't come on the scene yet. So if we look at this objectively, we don't find any evidence that they, the 11 disciples who received the commission, perceived this instruction to be for anyone other than themselves. In other words, they didn't repeat this commission to the recipients of the, their epistles as though it was a general commission. Right. And I found that interesting. Didn't you find mm-hmm. that interesting? I mean, we, we, we always feel like that was just implied that this is the basis. This is what they're working off of. And But their letters didn't reflect. Every, okay, now we've got you guys. You guys go out into the world, and I want you to do it. Do likewise. Yeah, it's they didn't. Did they, I don't think they ever read. Did anybody ever even, did any of the writers of the New Testament that wrote the epistles, did any of them repeat this commission? mission at all no to the readers not that i'm no. aware of okay the second thing we sh- uh that should be and i want to go ahead and say yeah we hear this all the time in our modern evangelical mm-hmm. well it's funny because i started going through this and like little songs that they teach you when you're a little kid started <laughs> popping into my head like there's one that's go ye into all the world proclaiming the good news mm-hmm. yeah the second thing we, uh, that should be pointed out that can change the whole meaning of the statement itself is that what we read in our English version that says, I will be with you even into the end of the earth or the end of the world uh, is, in fact, our old friend Aeon. You remember him, mm-hmm. the word that means age. But the English translators chose to use the English word world instead or earth. Uh, it's substituted here as well. Jesus closed his remark to the remaining 11 disciples with, I will be with you always, even to the end of this age. This is exactly how the 11 standing there would have heard it. They would have interpreted it no other way. Mm-hmm. Now, keep in mind, they already have asked Jesus in Matthew 24, what will be the sign of thy coming in the end of the aeon or the age, not the end of the world as our English translators opted to word it. And just as in the Olivet Discourse, this single, subtle word substitution has resulted in an, in an entire doctrine and dogma being constructed around the single translational error. So in the text that we're looking at today, the one called the Great Commission in Christianese, the interpretation has also been influenced by this substitution. When we use the word world, the commission seems to be for an unlimited period of time, Yet when we use the proper translation for the Greek word aeon, which is age, we find that the commission becomes for a specific period of time mm-hmm. until the end of the Jewish age, which, as we know, saw the beginning of its collapse when Jesus raised the cup at the Last Supper and declared, this is the new covenant in my blood. And the collapse was complete at the siege and destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. So one could and perhaps should conclude that this passage known as the Great Commission was really a very specific command to a very small group with a very special connection to Jesus and would be for a very limited period of time. 
we find the same translational errancy in other texts that seem to support an unlimited evangelical period. In Matthew 10, 23, Jesus said these words to the disciples, but when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For verily I say unto you, you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man come. It seems pretty clear here that the disciples were not laboring under the illusion that they had an unlimited amount of time to carry out their mission. But the opposite is true. They would not have time to cover the whole land of Israel before Christ's return in his kingdom. This also lends evidence to the fact that Jesus was letting the disciples know that there wasn't a lot of time because the siege of the land and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, marking the end of the Jewish age, was upon them. And and I don't see how, you know, when you understand this concept, it becomes, you st- everything else starts making more sense that Jesus said. Mm-hmm. You know, why would Jesus say, okay, all of this stuff's going to happen quickly. It's coming soon. Any moment, just be ready. It's going to happen. And of course, he it would be in 35 years, as we know now, looking back at 35 years, it would happen. But uh, what's, a, what's amazing to me is that if we read this in that time frame that Jesus was mm-hmm. talking, then it makes a lot better sense to us. Well, it's almost embarrassing to me. I'm sorry, I cut no, you off, ahead. sister. It's almost embarrassing to me the years that I've spent going... Well, he was saying it's coming quickly, but it's not happened yet. Like Jesus emphasized throughout everything. It's here. It's upon you. It's coming. You know, you need to be prepared right now, this moment. And we're sitting here 2,000 years in the future going, oh, yeah, that's for us now. But we've, I know, just almost beaten this to death, but it's important for people. This is what happens when the Bible is divine. Yes. Yeah. And it yeah. is this was written and recorded just for us to see 2000. It wasn't a historical account, yeah. which obviously that's exactly right. what it yeah. was. That's all it was. And it's, it's very egotistical of us as well. Oh. Am I 11? <laughs> uh, Tabitha is, I think okay. I just read 10, I think. It's me. Okay. And or did we do 10? Yeah, I did. Go to yeah, okay. okay. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's one of those days. All right. Yes. So in Mark, the final instructions of Jesus read like this. Mark 16, verse 15. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Again, the word that means land was translated world. The disciples would have heard, go ye into all of the land and preach the gospel to every creature. Though Jesus had already said that they wouldn't get this mission completed before the end of the age. And for 11 guys to cover every village in the land of Judah... That was going to be a tall order, Mm -hmm. yet it would be a realistic task. A command for 11 guys to cover the entire world? Not so much. Right. Okay, well, if that's all you guys have, we're going to take a break, and we'll be right back with segment two. And welcome back to part two. Now, it should become apparent to us by now that the mistranslation of this single word that means end of the age being either intentionally or unintentionally translated to the English phrase end of the world has given birth to all kinds of doctrines, dogmas, and traditions that have evolved into uh, movements by the Christian religious community that are in question when you hear it properly used as the audience of Jesus' day would have heard and understood it. 
Now, it's of our opinion that the modern organized church's definition of an emphasis on evangelism may be a product of the evolution of this mistranslational concept. Mm -hmm. Let us say here, we have no problem with evangelism by its generic definition, and that is to believe something and then to promote it by persuading others to believe likewise. Our topic point on evangelism is that in terms of the modern Christian religion, i.e. the church, it is a concept that has become indistinguishable with building the organization itself. Sure. I mean, we don't think about it, but we evangelize in a lot of non-Christian things oh, yeah. too. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you find that awesome new laundry detergent, you want everyone else to try it <laughs> and use it and find this good deal that you found. And we do these things constantly. So it's not that evangelism within itself is a bad idea. You know, when you feel like we do, that you have sort of been freed from this bondage. Mm-hmm. Of, that's why we're doing. But, but, but we'll, and we're going to cover this later, mm-hmm. little, just a little bit the episode. But you don't ever go to anybody when you're trying to, when you found this new laundry soap and say, if you don't use this. Right. Yes. Something bad's going to happen. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you don't start out by saying, I want to keep something bad from happening to you. Right. That's, that does sound like a TV commercial, though. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> See, Dad's got this side job where he writes TV commercials that'll never be aired. <laughs> In a recent episode, we pointed out that the organized church is fundamentally patterned on a pyramid scheme. The higher up in the pyramid you are, the greater the benefits you reap. But as in any real pyramid, its real support comes from the bottom layers. If those in positions of financial gain and power are to maintain their positions and benefits, there must be a constant flow of money and resources from the bottom up. Those toward the top are isolated by many tiers of layers of people holding various positions, including the pastors and staff of the local church. But even their benefits are subject to how many people are brought in to grow the bottom layer of the pyramid. And, you know, it's really funny to me. You can look at things like Leah Remini did a whole, uh-huh. what, three or four season thing on Scientology and how it was basically yes. a Oh, yeah, I, I had to cultic. remember who you were talking about. Yeah. yeah, But, you know, it's so funny because we, the as in the Christian community, can easily pick those out and say... Yeah. This is this is this is a pyramid. This is wrong, and yet we do the same. And let me point something out about a pyramid that we don't often think about. We often think of a pyramid that it starts with some bottom layers, and then you stack some mm-hmm. top layers, and you stack. It doesn't work that way. You stop with the you start with the point of the pyramid, the triangle at yes. the very top. Mm-hmm. That's always the place it starts, and you grow it by pushing that upwards. Yes. You just keep pushing. You know, a lot of people think you start at the bottom, lay the bottom layers, and then finally you come up with some people. No, you, a pyramid always starts with the elite. Yes. The point of the pyramid, and then you start stacking layers underneath. I just thought I would say that. Okay. Now, this is where evangelism becomes distorted. It wouldn't have the same impact if we titled it what it really is, recruitment of new members. As an individual on the bottom, we are given the impression that the function and survival of the institution is dependent on those occupying the upper levels of the religious pyramid, when the truth is, those at the top would not exist without the efforts of the bottom tiers. 
Does that not almost sound occultish? <laughs> I mean, it is. Okay, so let's be honest. Most of us who have come up through the organized church perceive our duty of evangelism in all this is to get the people inside the doors of the, of the facility. In other words, persuade people to come to church. Those at the top of this religious pyramid have become very proficient at creating and passing down programs and gimmicks that will aid those at the lower levels in their recruiting or evangelistic efforts. So let's play a couple of those because like a few came to my mind with, but you know, back a few years ago, there was one that was called Pack the Pews. Yeah. Where every person was supposed to invite three Mm -hmm. to four people to come. There were other ones like the frog movement, fully rely on God, that was really encouraged toward teens and Mm preteens to you were supposed to bring these little frog things to your friends and then you were inviting them to church to come with you and it sort of and and, and like tabitha mentioned in an episode or two ago uh she still receives a lot of the southern baptist mm-hmm. material and right now they're just being real straightforward and saying okay we know you're hurt you know you we know yeah, during these yeah. times you're not getting the people and the finances and here's how you can do that mm-hmm. <laughs> So in our more modern times, we label these involved in the religious pyramid evangelicals. This is a title that can be widely used to tie all brands or denominations to things like political platforms and social and cultural issues. Does anyone find it interesting that the one thing that all brands of the Christian religion have in common is that they are based on this pyramid method to sustain and exist? It's like that was the one thing they couldn't get rid of. I, yeah. I talked to a guy the other day, and I mentioned this to him. And uh, and he's 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 a smart guy, and he's involved in in one of the I think Presbyterian. I can't remember, but he said twice when I was talking to this. Oh yeah, that's. But he said now some of some of the ones. That's why I like the Presbyterian. We're not based on it. And I'm thinking, <laughs> wait a minute. Yeah. You are because yeah. you're sending your, it's a pyramid, whether you, you know, mm-hmm. it's funny how we'll say, well, ours doesn't work like that. Right. We control the local church. Controls. Does, but ours does. Yeah. <laughs> As it means on yes. seven. Again, the pattern of the pyramid, uh, in the pattern of the pyramid, very few manage to move up the pyramid to a point that they see material benefit from being part of the structure. Now, is that, a, is that a fair statement? We're not just trying, we're just trying to be objective and look at this. Well, I was thinking about that. And, you know, with the MLM, you know, the direct sales marketing, that's all pyramid scheme related. You do have goals that you meet, you know, so Mm -hmm. you and it takes a lot to meet those goals. But I was thinking in the Christian community, what unless you become a pastor or a music ministry. And very seldom does that come up through the local congregation, through the pyramid. That usually injects into yes. the top and comes back so down. this is one of those, there's not much room for advancement. <laughs> in, the, in the bottom well, of the pyramid. I can't say that I've ever even spoken to a pastor who was like, you know what I really want to do is get on the national church board. And I mean, I know that those things happen, but they're not something that you just, okay, I'm a pastor and I'm going to go apply for this position and yeah. probably get yeah. it. Right. That's not how those work. If you're hearing this analogy of the religious pyramid being applied to the structure of the modern organized church and you aren't sure this is fair and proper, there is a test to the theory. All pyramid schemes collapse when the new recruits being brought in at the bottom is not sufficient to support the demands of the higher tiers of the pyramid. In other words, it is the money that flows upwards that sustains the pyramid. Ask yourself this question. If you were to stop the upward flow of money, would the pyramid collapse? 
And I don't think we need any answer for that. <laughs> then we must ask another question. While those recruiting or evangelize, evangelizing may have the purest hearts and motives for their efforts. And most of them do. Yes. It is easy to see how those whose benefits depend on the growth of the of the base may factor into the need to evangelize or recruit, depending on whether your greatest concern is sharing the good news or is shared by a desire to maintain the structure. Yes. Okay, so we're going to take a short break and we're going to be right back with segment three. And welcome back to part three of episode 93 of God Beyond the Bible. Today we're taking a look at the concept of evangelism and how those who encourage and promote it may have a divided allegiance when it comes to the motivation behind this effort. In segment one, we looked closer at the main text that is used to support the concept of evangelism. We're told that we should participate and support this concept because Jesus commanded us to do it in the Great Commission. And it is an open-ended commission because he said to do it until the end of the world. Yet, as we pointed out, he gave the commission to 11 of his closest colleagues who were instructed to carry out this mission into all of the land until the end of the age. Now, as difficult as it is for us, indoctrinated by the organized church, to step back and take an objective look, uh, can we deny that evangelism has become a recruiting tool to support the pyramid that the church denominations have patterned themselves after? No, I don't think we can deny that at all. Now, let's take an objective look at the methods we use under this label of evangelism. The gospel, which literally means the good news, seems to have become almost everything but good news in the pattern and form we've been conditioned to declare it today. It is seldom presented as salvation that has come down from the divine out of love for his created humanity, but has been manipulated and construed to sound more like we are promoting a message that we need to be saved from the one who created us. Is that unfair? I don't think that's unfair at all. As a matter of fact, I... I don't know what happens to you guys, but I go down rabbit holes when I study for these and I end up in places. And one of the things that I was reading was how to evangelize properly. And they were telling you to avoid phrases like all you have to do is or because what you need to do is you need them to understand the life and death terror of the situation that they're in and bring them forward. And that just sort of. Wow. It's hard at this point for me to read things like that and go, okay, that's normal. Mm -hmm. So likely as not, you will hear the modern evangelical begin the encounter with a potential recruit with something along the lines of, if you die today, will you go to heaven or spend eternity in hell? And then after the fear tactic is laid on by informing the person that they're already headed to eternal suffering and torment, we tell them that they need to repent of their sin, utter some words, do a couple of acts of obedience like walking up the aisle and being baptized, which is often synonymous with becoming a member of their organizational brand, and ta-da, the curse has been lifted, eternal torment averted. well, in some cases only temporarily, depending on the brand, but you, you know, you could backslide and become lost again and have to sort of... I guess you're a potential re-recruit then. Yeah. 
So how exactly did it come to be that becoming baptized automatically made you a member of? That's a good question. It doesn't. It's it's a pretty sly thing. Uh, you can be baptized without becoming a member. But generally, what we've done, we've established this in a way that the church has the power to sanction who gets baptized uh-huh. and to sanction the baptism. And sanctioning the baptism is philosophically the same as adopting the creed. Gotcha. Okay. So. We're, since we're holding the sanction, you adopt our creed. So you are now ready to be. And there are churches. There are many denominations. You can't move among those denominations without being re-baptized. I actually mm-hmm. went through that when I was younger. Yeah, yeah. Because I was baptized into a community church, a non-denominational. And then when I wanted to move to a different denomination, which, by the way, Dad was still pastoring. Yeah, I was pastoring both. Same. Yeah, yeah. It, they wouldn't allow me to join the church without being rebaptized no, because of a big... they did. Well, yeah, they yeah. did, <laughs> but they want to. They did, but had, had I not been the pastor, they probably wouldn't have. Exactly. But, you know, I can remember when I was a clerk for, the, for a church, and, you know, I would have to send letters to request yeah. movements, and there was another denomination of Baptist church that would not give me a letter because... We were different Baptists. Yeah, weren't even yeah. yeah. Weren't the right but see, kind of Baptists. See how we've used the tools. Mm-hmm. We've taken the things that are supposed to be connected spiritually, and we've made them credentials and and yeah, you know, for getting in. I don't know who's five. Okay, first of all, neither the master nor his disciples used such a method as a way to promote the good news. Jesus never initiated an encounter with, if you die today, where will you spend eternity? <laughs> he presented himself and his message as one of hope. He was dealing with a society of people who had been held under the bondage of a religion that demanded not only their obedience to a strict creed and rituals, but also made heavy demands on their personal finances. That by the way, supported the flush lifestyle of a few at the top of the religious pyramid of that day. And Jesus circumvented the demands of the organized religion of his day at every turn and opportunity. He didn't utilize the temple to teach his message of religious freedom. He used riverbanks, seashores, mountainsides, and fields as his sanctuary and classroom. He taught them to speak directly to the Most High Father without the support of the temple priest or altars. He went to great lengths to expose the hypocrisy and grab for power over the people and greed of the religious establishment of his day. And let me say, people are going to jump out and say, well, yeah, he did go to. But when he went to the temple, I want you to notice, it was only religious people there. Mm-hmm. Yes. When he went to the temple, there weren't big crowds that they couldn't get into the temple. It was so crowded. But when he went to the fields or he went to the people's houses, it was always so crowded. He just put that in the back of your mind and remember that. So Jesus' message was always one of hope and of encouragement based on the unconditional love of the Father. Jesus' message was all-inclusive and universal in its message and application. He never turned any away, regardless of their race, their creed, their lifestyle, their cultural or their social position. He never quizzed the people he touched and impacted of their creed. Neither did he present them with a religious creed of his own that they needed to agree and adopt. He never said, kneel down here with me and let's pray the sinner's prayer. In fact, he never even made sure that they classified themselves as a lost sinner before he invited them to believe on him. In fact, that's the only thing he ever placed before them. And that was to believe that he was who he said he was. Mm -hmm. Those that indicated they believed on him as the Son of God were never asked 
or instructed to do anything more to complete or confirm their loyalty to him. He seemed to promote the idea that merely believing in him was sufficient and that those who believed should trust him to handle the details. In fact, Jesus didn't even go out knocking on doors or standing on the street corners handing out flyers, randomly interacting with those walking by. The truth be told, if you look at it objectively, Jesus more or less just made himself available and those who were seeking him came to him. What a difference. Well, even when you're cause <laughs> even when you're buying a car, when you go on the lot, which lot do you want to go to? The one where the salesman is like a little fly that's buzzing around you yeah. while you're trying to look at different vehicles <laughs> and hey, you need to come over here and look at this one. Do you like this car? Let me tell you about this one. Or the guy that goes, hi, my name's Joe and I'll be right in there. If you guys want to talk, you come on inside and yeah. we'll. Right. And, and you think about this is Jesus comparing Jesus approach to all of this. Uh, Jesus had something to offer. That wasn't taxing them, costing them anything. Yes. It wasn't asking them to do anything. That's the reason they would line up along the streets where they thought he might just walk through. Mm-hmm. Isn't that different than, isn't it so different in the enthusiasm we have about the church? Mm-hmm. Just pointing Am that I, out. Is it nine? Yes. Okay. When we compare Jesus's message and methods to what we call evangelism today, there should be a glaring contrast in the two. Did we mention that Jesus never told them to go to some official location that was set aside and dedicated (laughs) for the attendance of those who adopted his creed? No one was ever afraid to approach Jesus for fear of condemnation or judgment for how they live their life. Quite the opposite, the people sought him out, and when they did, they never left with a burden of religious rules, creeds, dogmas, or rituals that they must keep up in order to maintain their status of being right with God. And this is going to kind of vary, but this is so funny because I had a conversation with a person a couple of weeks ago and they were talking, we were talking about church and pastors and Mm -hmm. preachers and the messages they presented. And the person told me, said, well, if I go to church and my toes don't get stepped on, then something's not right. Yeah, that's essentially if you don't get a little bit offended (laughs) or if you don't feel guilt. Yes, that's if you it. Go, the, basically, that's what they're saying, and right? That broke my if, heart. if you I go like, there and don't, if I go there and don't feel guilty, but you know what made me realize that how wrong we had this is one time a guy said to me, he said, you know, I've tried the church thing, and you know what? Uh, all I did is walked out of there just feeling guilty. Yeah, I, I didn't feel, I didn't walk out any better. I walked out feeling worse about and myself. That's crazy. You know? and that, and that's <laughs> Jesus it. never, Jesus never. Nobody walked away from Jesus. There's one about, yeah, the rich young ruler, and we really don't. We don't have time to go into all that where he walked away sad because he could. And we all know there was something more going on. Jesus said, sell everything you have and give it to the poor and follow me. And uh, everybody, you know, Jesus knew that wasn't going to save that man. Right. That it wasn't was going to make matter. that man right with God. It was a affair of the heart, and that was a very yes. specific. But G, people didn't walk away from Jesus disappointed. Seldom did anybody. That's, that's one of the rare occasions that anybody walked away from Jesus disappointed. Which I think is why it was included is like, and then there was this one time that this weird thing happened. (laughs) But you know, and that's what's so crazy is though, you said new people will come into the church and they leave feeling just downtrodden guilt and they don't like that. Why do we who have been Christians for years and years look for that? It's almost like we expect it. We expect to just we have we have a down we have we a messiah church. complex. Yeah, we all suffer under we all operate under a messiah complex that if we're suffering, mm-hmm. we're doing good. Then we that means it's good. That means God's happy with us if we're suffering. 
We're back to the three chairs, Tabitha. Gotcha. See, yeah. if we're suffering, then we're in a good place with God because he wants us to suffer. Yeah. That's, where did we get that concept? <laughs> I don't know. Well, like I said, it goes back to Tabitha and I listened to a youth pastor one time who's brought out a recliner of slightly padded, you know, like office chair sort of thing in a metal chair. And he brought it out. And essentially the idea was unless you were sitting uncomfortably in that metal chair, you were not a good Christian. If you're in the recliner, that's when you're in your comfortable. That's when you're the farthest from God. And you see how we got all of this yeah. just so up. We've got it just so messed up. And Does that bring down. me to and, and, and I've contributed. Listen, listeners, I've contributed as much to this as anybody ever well, has. And even us, Tracy and I not being pastors, we've done the same. We've yeah. evangelized yeah. this, you know. Yeah. So it may seem that the evangelical approach we have developed today is about almost anything and everything but a message of hope and peace and personal encouragement. Our approach to evangelism seems to include a dedication to the structure of the organization as being at least almost as important of a component as believing on Jesus as the son of the most high. Well, that seems to be our forefront point. Believe on. Then after that, it's just all these other things. And he just that just fades away. That point just sort of fades into oblivion. Well, it's like I had somebody come, you know, one of the door knockers that yeah. come to your uh-huh. house. And she was wanting to show me. And I said, well, you know, I said, and this was a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I believe that if we believe on Jesus and believe that he died on the cross mm-hmm. to save us from our sins, then that's, she goes, well, that's where it starts. Yeah, there you go. Well, and that's, <laughs> that's basically, we do the same thing. Yeah. Okay. Or always do, or the organized. I'm sorry, I say we, I mean, right, right. In, in the organized uh, church, organized religion. Okay, we here at God Beyond the Bible are believers on Jesus as the way God chose to deliver humanity into a real-time relationship with him. Something that ritual, personal sacrifice, adoption of a religious creed, or affiliation and attendance of a well-structured organization never could or never will accomplish. Jesus removed the control of the people's spiritual pursuits from the hands of those who claimed to have it, and he returned it to the individual. Our modern pyramid style of organized religion that depends on a distorted style of evangelism as a method of recruitment has seen its day come and go. Mm-hmm. Listen, folks, it's in decline. Mm-hmm. Not because people have turned away from God. See, I'm so sick of hearing that. Yeah, yeah. It's the great well. falling away. People, I said, I told a guy the other day that said that to me. I said, did you ever think about, let's apply that another way. Let's apply that. Have you ever thought about it? Maybe the church is what's falling away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe this is a great reformation. <laughs> there you go. Okay. But it it's not because people have turned away from God. Quite the opposite. Because people are turning away from the thinly veiled schemes of power yes. and profit and turning to God through the method he provided, and that is believing. So until next time, as always, may God's unconditional grace, peace, and love be in, on, and radiate out from each of you, our fellow believers, from all of us here at God Beyond the Bible. Did you enjoy listening to God Beyond the Bible? Do you have an idea for an episode? Connect with us today. Visit our website at godbeyondthebible.com, all one word, or send us an email at email at godbeyondthebible.com, or you can visit us on Facebook. Just type God Beyond the Bible into the search bar.